Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Movie of the Year, the only podcast on the internet that has the science and the screaming to determine what is the single greatest movie of any given year. My name is Ryan, and tonight we kick off the 1985 season with Martin Scorsese's After Hours. I will be your host, and I will pit two of my friend Ishes, but mm. only one will become my bestest bestie. Coming in, I would say as the, uh, I don't know, the number one seed, the person who it's going to be almost impossible to beat, but let's have a competition anyway, is Greg. Hey, it's Greg. How you doing? I'm ready to do this, Ryan. I'm ready to get this done. I think that there might be a reason why you're not going to win tonight, and I'll get to that in a second. The reason is not Mike. Mike is here. (laughs) Oh, that... That's a weird lead-in, so yeah. I might win, but have no- nothing of my own power. Please stop the applause for our next guest. <laughs> Is that bad hosting? That's fine. I can be the heel. I'll do it. Sometimes we win. The he- that no, is got- never how the heel actually approaches being the heel. Okay, here I go. I'll be I'm the guy. I'm a beta heel. <laughs> do you guys not think Eeyore was the heel of the Winnie the Pooh gang? Oh, no, that was Christopher Robin. Oh, that motherfucker. That I motherfucker. Gonna, I was going to say rabbit for sure. Yeah, it was just nervous. But right. like, that means that he has to come down on everyone and just give them rules and shit all the time. Yeah, yeah. you're living in the hundred acre wood. You got to take care of each other. Rules have. Rab- we already have a fucking owl over here. Rabbit wisdom is all day. One hundred percent the cops. Rabbit is like, I'm going to tell you what the rules are. This is what everybody has to do. I'm freaking out all the time. No way, man. Was B Rabbit based on Rabbit? Was yeah. Eight Mile Winnie the Pooh from Rabbit's perspective? Mm-hmm. That was the pitch. Huh. <laughs> Cheddar Bob was, of course, Piglet. <laughs> Guys, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of Martin Scorsese's least famous film. I want to say, By I mean, there's lot, always right? there's always Kundun, but uh, nobody talks about After Hours anymore. And yet, the three of us decided it was going to be in our top eight, our elite eight of 1985. I will start this off this little intro by saying I fucking love this movie. I think that it is a near masterpiece. How did it sit with you guys? It was wild. Uh, what it more of an experience of a movie than I've had in a long time. Literally, never knowing what to expect because nobody talks about it. Never heard of it. Uh, just weird performances. Really good performances, but weird performances. Like, there's definitely a thing Scorsese and Co is going for here that just most movies are not doing. Uh, I thought it was phenomenal. I I thought it was an impressive movie, and I thought it bordered on greatness at times. I think there's a lot of potential there. I feel like it, it didn't fully commit to what it wanted to do in some aspects. It was weird, but maybe not weird enough sometimes, or too weird if you're not going to commit commit fully, and we'll get to, to talk about that. The I took an almost instant dislike to this movie, for several reasons one is it it one of the first things you see is uh the main character paul hackett reading tropic of cancer a book that i really actively dislike and it put me right in the wrong headspace tropic of cancer is a book that is about like um i was kind of like a sex uh, an artist exploring sexuality and existentialism but it has a really in my opinion deeply unhealthy relationship with sexuality especially um male and female relationships like how men view women and everything. It's really kind of, I, I find it, it gross. Um, 
it has this people have this opinion of it as like being like a, a salacious book it's not it's disgusting it really like it it doesn't explore the joy of sexuality it only explores like the mechanical kind of like gross aspects of, of sexuality I think there's a lot of interesting subtext in the movie, and I think there's a lot of on-the-nose stuff. Uh, and I like how on-the-nose him reading Tropic of Cancer is. I've, I read it, and I was confused by all the people who say it's wonderful because it's sort of like, because, because you're like the main character, like, do you just love that finally you're being, you know, represented in novels? Which, by the way, if you relate to that character, you've been represented in novels since the dawn of novels. Uh-huh. So I'm not sure why that was your problem. Or do you like sort of like the irony of you know this is a bad person and we all know it and if it's that way i do think after hours is playing with that aspect of yeah. tropic of cancer a little bit um and, and i was i was like very uncomfortable with probably like some of like the back in the dayness of it um i don't like the the picture it paints of women and i don't like the way it it depicts new york as like so white or or I don't like what it's doing with marginalized groups. Um, and that made me never like fully settle into the movie. But at the same time, I I do recognize that it's very interesting. Uh, there are some great performances in it. Even if there's almost nobody likable in the movie, there are a lot of very likable performances. Uh, Mm -hmm. Catherine O'Hara and um what's griffin dunn the the main the main character paul hackett is like not a good guy but i I think the performance is a powerful one um so i'm kind of of those two minds you know like i'm impressed with the movie but at the same time it just the parts of it just didn't sit right with me yeah greg you said settled in and you know uh, like like in various ways throughout this episode we're going to talk about like did anybody get settled in and were you supposed to you know like yeah. that that like keeping you from getting settled in you know just like paul hackett was never able to do uh was that the point point? and still even a lot of times when that when somebody tries to make that the point and they're successful it doesn't still mean it's good you know like yeah. but you still fucking tortured me for 90 minutes so <laughs> fuck you i also did not know anything about the movie at all which was a, a cool experience uh, especially for this particular movie because so much of what happens is out there and, and what is really going on and and what the real story behind all of this is is very much up for grabs but i did recognize the the cover when i searched for it on the internet it was this was just like one of the movies the the big clock and uh paul hackett like has like his head is on top of the clock and it's being twisted around that is like a, a VHS cover I saw in movie stores my entire childhood and never paid attention to it and wouldn't re- have realized I remembered it except to suddenly see the poster for this movie. I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Prepping for the season, I realized that like when you were a kid and walking through those video stores and all of these you know, boxes that are sort of in the background but don't pop out. All of those movies came out in 1985. Yeah. Every yeah. single one was from this year. Yeah, yeah I mean, you got to fill those shelves somehow. You bought a certain size lot. There's so many shelf space in your blockbuster. Go to 85. Yeah. The other thing, too, that I want to get into later is the Martin Scorsese of it all before you watched it. Like, you guys said that that was the only thing you knew about it going in, right? Was that it was Scorsese. And yeah. did that put more pressure on? Were you, like, watching it with a different eye because you knew this was the guy who made The Irishman, a movie that's better than Little Women? Oof, yeah, uh, it's weird to lie like that <laughs> in an intro of a show, but it, it, yeah, it definitely is. Like all I knew is Scorsese, Scorsese, not gangster. The only Scorsese, not gangster, I, I know I've seen is Shutter Island, and so I'm like, okay, so he's known for when he's not talking about gangsters. The movie's not as good. That's interesting. Uh, even though I like Shutter Island, 
uh, has a bad rep. And yeah, it was mostly like, okay, so in my head, this is kind of a directorial exercise then. And Holy shit. Enjoy it. I haven't seen Shutter Island, but I know one or two things about it. Uh, maybe some of the big things about it. And this movie is actually an interesting companion piece to that mm-hmm. one. Like, you know, like I, I think when you get to the end of this movie and you have the same question you do like several times throughout the movie, with it, which is, what the fuck is really going on? And I think it, that Shutter it, Island, I think, asks that <laughs> same question. It well, feels there's like that's... every Mike, few movies, Scorsese's like, fuck you, I don't just have to make movies about gangsters. I've seen a David Lynch movie, I can yeah. do this. <laughs> I read it's short Dave... stories. It's David Lynch, but a lot of it too is. Like, he's so influenced by European directors, but uh, every once in a while, like once a decade, he'll still be like, no, 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 Hitchcock, you know? Like, mm. that's the guy who inspired me more, and Shutter Island and After Hours could be both be different types of Hitchcock movies. Right. All right, we're going to take a break. Enough of this, like, just barely talking about the movie. We're going to take a break and then fucking talk about this movie. In 1984, Paramount Pictures pulled the plug on Martin Scorsese's Dream Project, a film based on the book The Last Temptation of Christ, after costumes and sets were already being created. Devastated, Martin Scorsese decided the one thing he could do to bring himself out of this funk was to go make a movie right now. He read every script Hollywood had, including Beverly Hills Cop and Witness, and instead opted to make a screenplay that just got a Stanford film student an A in his screenwriting class. After Hours tells the story of Paul, a middle-class white-collar loser who meets a girl, calls the girl a little later that night, and stumbles through a night-long adventure that winds and weaves its way through a million different sections and subcultures of Reagan-era Soho. It's a simple premise that hits every level of crazy, as Martin Scorsese said when he chose the script that he wanted to return to his roots and make something that was all style, no substance. <laughs> Taste buds, we're going to start with the big one and then hone in from there. What and why? Dream, nightmare, allegory, hell, Wizard of Oz, comedy, horror. What do you make of the world Paul is in? What do you think Martin Scorsese makes of it? What is the reality of this movie and is it even important to figure out? I think upon viewing it, I've watched it twice for this show, and viewing it the second time, I feel like just shy of saying this movie is definitely about someone who is trapped in hell, this movie is definitely about someone who is trapped in hell. And I I feel Mm -hmm. like that is interesting, but I think that there is a weakness in that the movie never fully, like, acknowledges that totally, because I feel like it's a little cowardly not to, not to make it, like, totally apparent that that's what is going on, but... I, in the same breath, I am saying it is almost totally apparent, and you could not convince me that this is not at least a take on somebody being trapped in hell. Yeah, this is definitely like Paul's. Who? Who? What Greek guy went down to hell? Orpheus. Yes. Did Orpheus go down? Do to hell? you remember this his story dead? about him in the hospital? Like where he, if he take, Paul in the hospital, yeah, if he takes his blindfold off and looks, he's told not to look at right. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if he Orpheus turns around and looks at his wife, she can't come back. Right. And so this is. It's that combined, yeah, so there's definitely, like, gross magical realism going on. But I don't know, I think in 85 and also in general, to say, yep, he's definitely in hell, we'd be like, all right. Like, it does leave it intriguing, but I, it also feels like this is what, like, a normal white square's take on late-night New York City is still. There's still people who think the disney New York City is like this. Uh, if you w- walk around, you're like, oh, you'll see all kinds of crazy shit. And and you really won't. So it's just like, Paul's a square, he's, he's just like a... Not a number cruncher, but like a word processor. That's his job. It fe- this feels uh, like only in New York, the movie. Yeah. 
<laughs> yes, for sure. And so this is like, yeah, if you're a square and you decide to explore New York at night, watch the fuck out, man. And I have a question about where he is supposed to be because I had different feelings about this throughout the movie. And I mean, like, literally in New York, Soho. Mm-hmm. At this time, I imagine it is, like, in the process of being gentrified. So it is both kind of a little bit rough and a little bit um, avant-garde and, like, still, like, a whole wave of white people are moving in. And I'm assuming also a, a largely gay crowd based on the fact that this movie sprinkles in a lot of like gay iconography. But is that what Soho is like? Right. It, like a, a, a area on the up and up, like a nice ish area. Yeah. Currently I think Soho is a huge shopping area. Like we're talking 30 years later. Soho yeah. just is crazy gentrified. It's There's one giant cold. <laughs> yeah, it, it is the nicest story you could think of. And but so yeah, that makes sense that thirty years ago, if the the start was so the artists are here taking over massive lofts. Yeah. Um. I mean, I and so there's still a cool edge to it. What I've heard uh, is that like one of the crazy things about this movie is that if you're a cocktail waitress or a bartender, you can afford to live here. You know, like back then you could scrape together uh, Kiki's studio apartment. Uh-huh. That <laughs> that's four million dollars a month. But uh, for the most part, you know, Terry Gar's tiny apartment. You still need to make a hundred grand a year to afford that now. Yeah, but right. this was that era where, and we're like five years away from uh, Rudy Giuliani. Do you guys remember that guy? I do. Yeah. Where did he go? Rudy, well, that's not a real person. Rudy. That's a cartoon's name. Um, coming in and saying, "I want to clean this place up," which is basically all minorities and subcultures get out of everywhere, so white people can come in and pay exorbitant amounts of money. This is about five years before that. But so he's like trapped in in this part of New York and simply can't get home because his money has flown out the window. Uh, but R- Ryan, do you think that it is supposed to be like something supernatural or dreamlike is happening, or it's just that's a mood that the movie is trying to employ? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, like he wants to make this farce and he wants to make this cartoony thing and he wants to get away with everything, you know, and like that's the I thing mean, I feel, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mike, you said director's exercise, and usually that's so, that's so derogatory. But I instead I sort of think like, oh, okay, so Martin Scorsese can literally make anything, and I will watch it and love it because his director's exercises are different than Josh Trank's. Yeah, it's a director's exercise is inherently related to their skill set. So if you get Scorsese, yeah, it's going to be a more watchable exercise than somebody else's. And I think that. By having all the hell stuff, I mean the guy. The, the guy walks out of the pearly gates yeah. to like start his night, and then all of the references to fire and stuff, and then also making sure to bring up Wizard of Oz. Yeah, is mm-hmm. instead of like guiding us on this path of trying to figure out, and then the Orpheus story, uh, what we're referencing or what this is an allegory for, it almost seems like we're in uh, Paul's semi-educated but not really brain and so he's shooting out all of these references trying to figure it out and the entire night he's he's not just trying to figure out you know how to get out of this but what is going on and you can tell by the things that get close-ups and the things that he thought he saw but then changed later Uh all of that comes into like that's paul's fucking small brain that he thinks is large but i don't think it is and 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 i think like if you're afraid and a square and new like this he he attaches himself to the MacGuffin changes throughout the film, but it is showing like he needs to exercise. He needs to employ a plot here because he can't just be wandering a city. It has to mean something. It has to be after something, whether it's keys or a bagel paperweight. Like he's like, no, I, I have a purpose here. So it's just like this 
fucking boring bland dude searching for in that way though when he could just go it's to kind bed. of an allegory for capitalism right because he's kept moving Mike. constantly but what he's really mm-hmm. seeking is just to be able to like stop moving but he can't because he's caught up in this system and so he like perpetually is moving until he's finally just delivered right back at work again uh, so it seems that, like like a critique of like modern or 1985 right. capitalism in that way. That and I mean his he loses all of his money right away, um, yeah. and you're <laughs> not supposed to do that in capitalism. And then also his he has so many opportunities for major major freaks out freakouts. But his biggest one is when the subway guy says you're supposed to have this amount of money, not the small amount of money that you have, and then he fucking loses his shit because yeah. you, he was just told that you are worthless. You don't have the amount of money you need to. Uh, make me think of you as being a person and that it changes like something from on high changed the rules last minute they said at midnight it switched over and he's like what are you talking about how does that even work and then later on he meets a guy who says like they changed the money or they changed the fare on the subway do you believe that and the guy's like yes we all knew i think (laughs) i think there's also a a big clue in his conversation with the um, bouncer at the bar berlin because this this mm-hmm. scene uh, is one of two instances in which this movie lifts something in a plagiaristic manner. Uh, but that scene is like something right out of Kafka. Literally, there's a at the gatehouse, I think it's called a Kafka store or a, a Kafka story. It's not Kafka esque. He actually wrote it about someone trying to get through. the most Kafka. Yeah, that's like, as Kafka esque <laughs> as he could possibly get. But the their words, as I'm sure you could tell, like a little stilted in that conversation, and it's because they're taken from this kafka story where a guy is like trying to get just basically get past one guard um and there is that sort of kafka level of like super hyper reality where at first you think you're reading something that is like a very mundane story but by the end of it you realize there must be kind of something supernatural going on Mm -hmm. and i think that informs a lot of this as well there's a one of the other famous reasons uh or movies that this is famous especially in if uh scorsese's oeuvre is that um he had almost nothing to do with the script. And the thing that he's credited for, you know, because he'll, he'll get the script and he'll just rewrite it and do whatever he wants. But one of the only things that he changed that is uh, rewriting those lines in that one scene that you're talking about, Greg, where he just took somebody else's lines. Uh-huh. Like, I mean, that's the least amount you can do in a script is hit control copy on a Kafka thing and then paste it in the script. That's the least amount you could do now. In 85, that was very hard. That's true. <laughs> On, on, you had to literally paste onto the script those. You had to type in the file prefix. But the the whole thing, like the the, the hell, the the Kafkaness of that, it's it's exterminating an angel is what it reminded me of. Like he cannot leave this five block radius in Soho, and he doesn't know why. Right. He thinks he should, but it's interesting. Like, and this is why this is a definition of hell is uh, he thinks he wants something and he cannot get it. But then anytime he gets something he doesn't want it, he freaks yeah. out and doesn't like it. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah, either uh, moving towards something that he is pursuing or moving away from something that he's, like, afraid is going to get him. And that thing might be just a woman who is, like, slightly older, like, just barely out of her prime, and he is, like, horrified mm-hmm. by her. The, the waitress, Julie, like, this. I what I'm interested in part in the unreality is because it would inoculate the movie against several very offensive things it does, which we'll probably talk about later. Mm-hmm. But, like, the character of Julie would be very offensive if she weren't just supposed to be like an allegorical figure or a right. demon or something like that. And, and yeah, I do think she's pretty demonic. And like the way nobody is saying normal human things at each other or listening to each other ever. Cause he's trying to tell her his night and she's just talking about other stuff. Like they're not hearing each other ever. And then visually she, the, the minute she says like, 
do you know what a plaster of Paris bagel is? So you're like, oh no, everything is connected. And then a mouse gets caught in a trap and you're like, okay, yeah. if this isn't hell, then this is the stupidest fucking thing in the world. This only plays be- if all of this is, is not real. And I think that part goes beyond David Lynch. And now we're into like Salvador Dali, um, mm. you know, Buñuel territory with the way that that yeah. rat comes out and he looks at it. And that's the thing too, is that Buñuel characters, they didn't know they were in a Buñuel movie. But because this is, you know, post-Buniel, uh, Griffin Dunn looks at it and then looks back at Julie, right? That's Terry Gar. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's like, that was fucking weird, but so is everything else. So, <laughs> but, but there is that, like, there is that, like, uh, you know, response to it. You know, we do see him look at it. Yeah. yeah. And I know they had a hard time figuring out how they wanted to end this movie. And I think the end um, of the movie is a time they could have really nailed home the unreality. Um, and they they kind of did 50% of it, which is the original end of this movie, at least as they, they pitched it, was going to be that he like is permanently stuck as like one of those statues. At which point that would be an obvious, I think, like, okay, mm. no, this guy is in hell now. And this is the end of his, this is like the, the end of his punishment. or the, the But having him delivered back to the place where he works still keeps it like, a question mark. But I guess because that feels very Sisyphean, right? Yeah. So we're still playing with the green Or Tantalus. Tantalus house. would be the other one I think of with, with right. this guy because he's constantly wanting something and think like, it's not that he doesn't get what he wants. It's that he constantly, he's always thinking he's just about to get what he wants. And then as you said, Mike, mm-hmm. it gets maybe switched for another MacGuffin or it, it moves away just as the moment when he is re- reaching to grasp it, you know? Or he realizes the thing he wanted is awful <laughs> now that he's closer to it. Uh, Which... But, like, yeah, I think work was hellish. When he started, it's just a dude droning on about a lit mag. That sucks. That's already a real hell I have familiarity with. I know, but there's a there's a little section there. The very first scene is him training Balky Bartokamus uh-huh. from Perfect Strangers. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bal- he, Griffin Dunn seems happy. Like, hey, man, it's cool that you're working here. I'm stoked to train you. Um, and then Balky brings up that this is not permanent. And then that's the thing that, like, shatters Griffin Dunn's world. That, like, now he's like, oh, fuck, was that an option? I didn't even know that. I can never be happy again. Yeah. You know, but it seemed like that he was sort of appeased in his life. Yeah, he looks around at that moment and he sees, like, wedding rings and people's families. And he's like, wait, I'm, I am totally, like, moribund here. I'm, like, I'm, I don't want anything more and I don't want anything less. And so I'm just stuck and, and stagnant. Yeah, okay, so basically the entire rest of the show is going to get back to this question of, you know, what is the reality and why does it matter? Um, but the more, like, I, the more I watch the movie this week and the more we talk about it, the more I do think that um, he is he's the hero and we're rooting for him, but he is also a joke to be made fun of. Like, I, mm-hmm. I do think that he is in the crosshairs of this movie. And he's clearly Martin yeah, Scorsese, right? Like they picked someone who looked exactly like Martin Scorsese and then gave him Martin Scorsese eyebrow treatment. The other thing too is, yeah, I mean, this guy is rocking an Anthony Davis unibrow the entire movie. Um, and then also, I don't know if this matters. I don't know if you guys like talking about this, but Martin Scorsese was coming out of his fourth divorce when he went to make this movie. Oh my uh, God. Most of the story, uh, you know, behind the scenes of this movie is that it's all about being frustrated with the last temptation of Christ but, you know, we're going to get to Marty and his girl problems later. But before we do that, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to do a 1985 Rushmore. Mount Rushmore! That's right, guys. It is Rushmore time. Rushmore is where we dig into the year that was 1985 and take a little break from talking about After Hours. 
Uh, the movie never gave it to us, so why don't we give it to each other? Uh, Rushmore is a mountain with four famous presidents. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to come up with the four most iconic heads that should represent the television of 1985. This was the time of, I think, three, maybe, no, just three stations, right? Yep. No cable, no Fox. Um, I think there were remote controls at this point. I think everybody was on antenna. And so it's a lot easier to get on the Rushmore in this year because um, you have almost no competition. Uh, there can only be four. If you get one on, then you get a point. Greg, you're going to start it off. Who definitely has to be on this Rushmore Mountain? Ryan, if you ever threw a party and invited everyone you know. Hold on. Are we done? Is this all four heads? You would see <laughs> the biggest gift would be from me. And the card attached would say, thank you for being a friend. A movie about four older ladies. Sorry, Martin Scorsese. I don't know if these women are going to be in their prime for you or not. Four hilarious old, uh, older ladies uh, who showed us that humor has no age limit. Uh, these weren't bronze girls. These weren't silver girls. These were golden girls. I think it's a, it, people think it's like a camp thing to say that Golden Girls is a good show. Golden Girls is fucking hilarious. Like one of the funniest shows of all time. Um, and watch almost any episode at random, and I don't think you will be disappointed. 1985 was so lucky that with only three networks, they actually got a show that had the quality of a Golden Girls. Also, I love, too, uh, one of the most 1985 things about it, um, this is the Wilford Brimley Law, who was star <laughs> of 1985's Cocoon, is that we all think of them as, like, 80 or 90, oh, yeah. but they were late 40s, early 50s. People just looked different back then. All right, so uh, here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Greg. I'm going to ask you to pick one representative of the four, and if you pick the right one, it's going right on. If you don't, it's on the maybe pile. Oh, I'm going to go with Estelle. Estelle the older Getty? The old mom, the old mom, the, the old mom. There's the three of them. There's three of them that are old, and then there's one that's like old, old, and that's the one so, that I'm thinking of. Estelle Getty, who played Sophia. Yes. Of course, nice. that is the correct answer, Mike. There's already a spot gone. What are you gonna do here? Uh, cry a little inside. I, I I do think that there was a golden era of sitcoms in '85. Uh, what weird, wacky stuff did, were they interested in? Uh, and I think having somebody who is so outside of your comfort zone, come and live in your house and help take care of the family. And then you learn a little, but maybe they learn a little. Uh, and I think this mustachioed man uh, who at this point in time is mostly known for sitting on his own nuts. But I think <laughs> Mr. Belvedere started in 85 and deserves a spot. Wow. Okay. Um, there was a couple of things that I was hoping for. I don't want to fill up the mountain super quick, but I was – hoping so much that this older gentleman that sat on his teen nuts would be brought up at some point in this show. And Mike, I have to give it to you. Yes. Now Twitter teaches us that they had to stop filming for a number of days <laughs> because of this. <laughs> Don't slide just, down so hard, Belvy. Yeah. First of all, like that rush to sit down, like what were you doing? And then I can't believe that we don't hear about this more because most of the stories I hear is that uh, when you get old, your nuts go in the toilet. Yeah. Like they sort of they buoy in the water. Um, I, I can't believe that people aren't sitting on them more often. Maybe uh, it's an underwear situation. Mm-hmm. You know, That's why tidy whities Yeah, you, wanna you want them up and held tight to the body. That way when you go to sit down. Because the older you get, and he was like 60 when this happened, the older you get, the farther it is of just a free fall when you sit down. <laughs> 
at this point, I kind of like position my butt above the seat. And then from like a foot above, I drop down onto it. <laughs> but at, like every 10 years is like another foot. So he's probably just kind of like tipping over and falling into a chair. <laughs> Imagine just coming down on your nuts <laughs> from like two feet up. Just all 200 something pounds of you. I do have to say that it is a legendary story because much like Top Gun uh, made a bunch of kids decide to join the Air Force and the Marines. Um, hospitals had so uh, there was just so much fewer nut injuries because this one person told his tale. This yeah. he just taught us about nut safety. All right, Greg, two spots are open. What do you got? Uh, okay. Here's a show that I I'm going to tell you about, and you're going to say, "Is that for real?" And I'm going to say, "Yes." Uh, right. <laughs> Sorry. Rough. <laughs> um, there was a show led by Steven Spielberg that had the great filmmakers or the the great filmmakers uh, directing episodes and then great film stars and like the the stars of 85 were on this show. It was episodic in nature and each episode was like uh, the self-contained unit. So it was not episodic. Each each episode was its anthology own story. Show. Anthology, yeah. Uh, and it was a critical darling. It won 12 Emmys. And people might forget it exists because nobody fucking watched it in its day. And I'm not sure why. It's called Amazing Stories. I remember this from my childhood. Specifically, I remember the episode where the guy is like in the, the ball turret under the plane. And the, the landing gear won't go down because it's World War II and the, the plane got shot up. So he draws himself in the plane and the plane has big cartoon wheels. And then in real life, the big cartoon wheels pop up like, uh, that is an amazing story. It is an amazing story. It's basically the show was like an outer limits or like a twilight zone, um, or, or something like that. But it had, it was Steven Spielberg. And then it was like all these big directors and all of these major actors, every single episode, if you go on the Wikipedia, you'll see has, has major actors. And just, I think because it was an anthology, people were just like, nah, not interested. Do you remember the episode called Mirror Mirror? No. No, that uh, was written by Joseph Minion, the screenwriter of After Hours, and directed by Martin Scorsese, the director of After Hours. Oh, wow. Is that true? That is true. That's a crazy fact. We should have talked about the fact that Joseph Minion stole this story from something he heard on NPR, which he used to be able to do back in the day, because like, what's the chance that anybody else heard it? But have you, have you guys heard this, that uh, he heard this monologue on NPR in 1982, and it was about this guy goes to a deli, meets this really quixotic woman who uh, is like, my roommate makes these bagels and cream cheese out of paper mache. See, that's the thing is that when you steal, you're like, no, I didn't. I probably did. But you can't prove it. <laughs> paper mache, bagels yeah, and dude, cream cheese. It's right you're there. fucking busted. <laughs> that's a fingerprint, y'all. <laughs> but no, uh, the guy, Frank something, um, Joe Frank, Joe he Frank, made yeah. millions of dollars from this lawsuit. Like, I don't even know if it, like got past just two lawyers calling each other. Yeah. Just <laughs> Scorsese's lawyer was like, oh, fucking, how much money do you it's want? This is ridiculous. Paper mache bagels. Like, oh, okay, yeah. All right. <laughs> and there's like four other details that are exactly from this guy's monologue. What, uh, so what head do you want up on the mountain? Like, what do you want to represent amazing stories? I think is it Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, or uh, his best Mexican non-union equivalent. Esteban Spielberg. Spielberg. All right, I do have to put that on the maybe pile, which is Mike, crazy. Which is crazy in and of itself. I understand why you do it, but like this should have been the biggest success in TV history. Yeah, they're trying to relaunch it again, and <laughs> on uh, Apple TV. On Apple TV, and Jordan Peele also relaunched Twilight Zone on CBS Access, and 
we just I don't know if it's the type of show, like if we're just not down with anthologies, but they just don't work anymore. It's because on Black Mirror, they've got politicians fucking pigs. So, yeah. like, I think that now the bar has been set either very high or very low. I'm not sure where the bar goes for that, but... Different. It just goes <laughs> different. <laughs> Mike, what do you got? Uh, I can't think of anything more 1985 than a normal sitcom family brings somebody in and their lives get changed, but maybe so does yours. And uh, this launched this year, and I think for a seemingly little girl and then the 85 was also obsessed with science fiction but for a voice input child indicant to change your life so much uh and then you realize maybe vicky does have a soul uh i think small wonder deserves its place on here god damn every single thing that you need from a sitcom from 1985 uh yeah the sci-fi leanings the fucking neighbor who's just peeking through every single window (laughs) because she has inklings that the daughter might be a robot Uh uh-huh uh but is somehow never able to prove it either prove it in one episode because it's very easy or don't give a shit yeah but it was like six seasons of her like peeking through windows breaking Me- the law because she's, she's like i think vicky's a robot and vicky's like mm, error i am not a robot i am vicky human and she's like i'll prove it one day vicky <laughs> or her uh retort of i am not you are and that broke that neighbor's brain like shit are we all robots and then she just takes a piece of glass and like starts cutting our arm open to see the circuits <laughs> ex machina <laughs> style <laughs> remember vicky could just lift the sofa right above her head so that you could vacuum under it that's so wonderful look guys i'm gonna be honest like cheers was on in 1985 we could put sam alone on here but he was the star of like a decade vicky was specifically the star of 1985 and we never heard from her again <laughs> she is on the mountain yes greg what do you got we got one spot left Okay, wow. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff here. A lot of stuff I could go with. So let's go to speed around. I am let's- going to throw out one of the cartoons. Eighty five had great cartoons. They were basically all just commercials for action figures. But Thundercats uh, was a cartoon that nobody could tell you what it was about, but we all remember the imagery. It just had very cool cat related, sexy, yeah, mm-hmm. cool uh, cat related warriors. A bad guy that was like sometimes a mummy. I can't remember if his better form Mumra. was the yeah. Was he stronger when he was the mummy? Like I, I don't even remember why he would be one versus the other. They would just be like fighting him, and I guess it's just something they did because then it could be like another action figure you could sell, where he's like, "That's it, I'm going into different look mode," and he would suddenly be Mumra. Oh, that was big. And if you're one thing, you you better be able to change into a second thing. Yeah, either get bigger or become monstrous or something like that. Do you want Lionel to be the head or Scarf the Snarf. little Snarf? Snarf for sure. Snarf. Everybody's okay. favorite part of that cartoon. Snarf. The uh, Slimer of Thundercats. Yeah. Mike, what do you got? We're speeding uh, around. Another cartoon. I can't think of anything more 1985 than taking a well-known live-action show, turning it into a cartoon, and adding a magical sprite named Glomer. I'm going to say <laughs> it's Punky Brewster. <laughs> okay. Guys, we're done. Um... <laughs> I just decided, so... Oh, no! Your 1985 TV Rushmore is Sophia from The Golden Girls, Mr. Belvedere from Mr. Belvedere, Vicky from Small Wonder, and a co-shared mountain of Snarf and Glomer, (laughs) two cute little cat monster magic creators uh, from 80s cartoons. That is your Rushmore. When we come back... Let's talk more about After Hours. <laughs> well, that is very, very funny or very sad. 
and perhaps now you have something to think about. Or very problematic, and perhaps we have something to think about. But in any event, I'm sure you have some reaction to what you're listening to. So why not check us out on the social media? You can go to Instagram or Twitter and find us at Your Pop Filter. Email contacts at Your Pop Filter. Hey, everybody. Keep watching them movies. Gentlemen, thank you so much for coming back. I wasn't sure if that was going to be the case. Um, how do you think the movie holds up as a 53-year-old version and vision of the different subcultures throughout Soho? We have gay people. We've got modern artists. We've got punk rockers. We have, you know, all of these people who uh, sort of belong or relate to a different group. And Martin Scorsese sort of does his tour. How did that work? It definitely feels like he's heard of these subcultures before. Uh, I don't know if he'd ever interacted. I was surprised out of all of them, the gay community comes out the best and like least stare. Like Griffin Dunn doesn't look at the gay community judgingly. They're just also sharing the bar with him. Yeah. See, okay. Uh, but I took issue with that because the way that the, the way that gay culture is depicted in this movie is as scenery uh, mm-hmm. is, is the backdrop that you might encounter stuff like this. And I felt like, the point of those two gay men making out in the bar is that like Griffin and Dunn and the bartender are not looking at them because they don't even think that that's weird. And I felt like the point was here is something crazy happening two men making out. And these guys don't even look because they're so habituated to it, but it never like, there's not like really gay characters that you get to know in any dimension. It's just, they seem to be in the background, the accoutrement of like gay culture. Mm-hmm. And Kiki Bridges is a character that comes off very like, sort of like, uh, not like gender specific. She's like a masculine woman. Um, but Sorry, real quick. Uh, did you guys recognize her by the way? This is her yeah. second movie of the year episode. She's no. men in black. She's Linda it, Florentino. Oh, Linda Florentino. Yeah. Is she the, the sculptress? Yeah, yeah, Kiki Bridges, the the one who's doing the plaster of Paris sculpt- sculptures in the beginning, um, but it felt like okay, so you're like bringing these people, and then there's Greg, um, who is called the bad F word by, uh, which which Arquette is it? Rosanna Arquette. Rosanna, yeah. Rosanna Arquette, and then I think he p- pops up later, just like everything else does. I think he's the guy that um, Paul goes and hangs out with, uh, who like. Paul's like, can you take me home? And the guy's like, okay, there's some things I won't do, though. Yeah. And then he's like, I've never done this before. Knowing the way this movie works, that's probably Greg. Um, but, like, I don't know. Like, it, you you bring up gay culture so many times. What is the movie doing with it? And is it offensive if you, if it's just window dressing? I, I, I do, and this is the maybe giving it too much credit. For, for 85, for it to bring it up and have its characters be like, that's normal, that's fine, and not freak out. That feels huge for the year it comes out in. And yeah. because of what we see it treat artists, like avant-garde artists and uh, punk culture, where it feels like it's definitely going, look at these fucking weirdos every time they're there, that uh-huh. it's okay. You were much more sensitive with the games I, then. I think it's clear that uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, we can talk about all these different subcultures, but there's one thing that he knows about punk rockers. There's one single thing. You guys know what that is? Mohawks? Shave your head. (laughs) They have mohawks, and if you don't have a mohawk, then you're going to get a mohawk, because I heard that punk rockers have mohawks, and that is it. That is all he knows. It's mohawk night, and they let him in, so he's going to get a mohawk. And they're prepared. They're ready for that. Yeah. 
And they, yeah, they're my, very confused. They're like, you came on Mohawk night, bro. What are you running away for? Maybe throughout this season, uh, we'll learn that 85 was actually super sensitive to gay people and that in other movies that they were uh, more three-dimensional characters. But I agree, Mike. The fact that, like, when it's the... And they're, like, straight-up 80s village people, like, biker, yeah, that, that's leather, gay. Thing. They, they, yes. And then it's John Hurd and the bartender and then Griffin Dunn, and the four of them are sitting there, and they are just four humans. And the fact that it's not played for a joke, there's not that police academy... Uh, saxophone solo. There's not like somebody saying, oh, I better not drop my soap around mm-hmm. these guys. I think that, you know, that adds to like, there's so many people in Soho making Soho weird. These two are not it. These are I not do part think of it. it. I, I do think it's being played for a joke, though. I do think that it's supposed to be a joke that they're, that those two guys are making out in the background of a scene. And I don't think it's supposed to be a joke because any two people are back there making out. I think it's supposed to be a joke because two gay leather daddy guys are 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 making out and rubbing each other's nipples and everything i think it's a it's supposed to be absurd and a joke and then i do think that we have another gay couple in this movie the one that uh initially accuses uh yeah. paul of being the robber the mm-hmm. you know the person who's going around and there it just seems like two guys who they remind me a little bit of the much more offensive guys from seinfeld seinfeld yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but no, I think that they were just two characters who were concerned about the building and then also were gay. And I didn't see the jokes that I expected from a 1985 movie. Yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying, Greg, about, about the leather daddy ones. But because we get that couple and Greg, that it does almost feel like Scorsese is going, look, there's nuance here. Like there, there's different facets of gay culture. It's fucking baffling. If this came out today, I would not be calm about it. I'd be like, that sucks, man. But it just feels in 85 and how he deals with them versus how he deals with punks and artists uh and it's silly to put them all in the the same kind of category but uh it's it's a defter touch than i would have expected i mean i guess it it, it's it's defter than police academy would be the the example right right? which that's the bar that we should all try to achieve (laughs) and uh, maybe it's it's more nuanced than i'm giving it credit for because i guess those two the guys making out in the bar also then uh when it like they find out that marcy has killed herself they like they act very like human and compassionate about it. They don't like, no, there's no joke there. They're just suddenly two people who were like, Oh my God, this sounds really awful. What a terrible thing that, that has happened. Um, Based on Paul's history in this movie, uh, I would expect him to like roll his eyes or move a seat down or like, Oh, is everything crazy? Now boys are kissing boys. What, where am I? And instead the four of them just have a conversation. Yeah. Let's get to the, uh, the other thing. I, Along with Eternal Sunshine and Eyes Wide Shut, After Hours is at least the third movie we've covered that reimagines New York as almost exclusively occupied by white people. What is the effect of this repeated washing of New York? Like, are we attracted to these movies, the three of us? Yeah, it's, it's, no, I think it's, it's clear historically black folks just didn't show up until 2000 in New York. And so that's not these movies' fault for showing that. Like, yeah, I was, I was shocked that not even throwing, like, Normally, movies would be like, "Well, we'll make the cab driver black, like, or the subway token." Like, uh, it, yeah, it's not even doing the normal bad job. Other movies, yeah. <laughs> it 
it seems like a very it, it seems almost like pointed it, it it there i found myself like looking in the backgrounds of scenes and there are a couple of black punks which is cool because that's an underrepresented group but in the berlin when it's when it's full there's like some, right. some black punks that, but for the most part mike even as you said even in a in non-woke movie of of the 80s where you would expect to see them and it made me think of eyes wide shut and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind because like why what does it mean what are you saying and i got thinking about 85 this is like either the very beginning of the drug war or um like 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 the drug war has just started and what we're seeing in culture at this time is something that's happening in society which is like the, just this disappearing of black people as they get put into the system and part of what makes it palatable is if culturally there's that same big disappearing act mm. And this movie is like part of this very like awful tradition of just absolutely Correct. erasing black people from like existence. Like they're not even part of, of any part of this movie. Yeah, it, it's bad in any movie, but for these three New York movies we've dealt with, uh, that's anytime somebody talks about the good things about New York, it's the diversity. So to, yeah. to drain it of one of the few good things in this right. trash fucking city uh, is crazy. I'll, uh, okay, here we go. I, I can't earn points, so I can sort of say whatever I want. So here's my defense. Um, Eternal and Eyes Wide Shut, both winners of Movie of the Year. So I do yeah. think that this <laughs> predicts that After Hours will win this whole thing. Um, they're all like fever dreams, what's real, what's not. This is crazy. I don't know what to believe and what not to believe. But I do think that After Hours is the most uh, product of the main character's brain. And he hasn't ever been in contact with his life at his job and his apartment his area he he hasn't come in contact with black people so he can't even imagine them existing in this whatever this is that's a fine argument and i know you love scorsese but like one this is not an issue just with this movie this is an issue with his entire career oh dude Uh and i do think if you wanted to make that point then at some point fucking make griffin dunn deal with that right yeah like (laughs) otherwise it's like i was trying to say that were you i think you just because there's no textual (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's like everybody complains about the amount of three-dimensional females in martin scorsese movies um and i get it but i think i can come up with that list that they exist way quicker than black Mm -hmm. people like samuel jackson gets killed in like the first four minutes of goodfellas and that is sort of the end of the list so Yeah, I mean, like, this is a much bigger issue to me than um, three-dimensional women. You know, like, uh, Lorraine Baracco in Goodfellas and Sharon Stone in Casino. Like, neither one is good, but I definitely think this is worse. So I don't – I just said a thing so you guys could, like, snap back. I don't really believe that. It's an – yeah, it's an interesting thought, and I – god damn do I wish there was textual evidence of it. But, you know, and – I think ultimately what happens is like if I saw this movie in 1985, now, first of all, I'd be four. So I'd be very confused by a lot of things, but I don't think I would have even noticed, you know, but it's when we look backwards at these movies and we see how prevalent it really is that you start, like you have heard a lot of your life representation matters. And you realize there is so little of it, especially from when we were kids. And no wonder for our part, we're so broken about race because like you couldn't just have most movies didn't even contain one like just normal black person. I mean, if we if we want to talk about the systemic racist of racism of movie, movie of the year, um, you know, we go by Letterbox's list and then we come up with our elite eight, which we think should win. And because of that, it's all white people because mm-hmm. that's 
those are the movies that people watched back then, you know? Like, do we, should we have a spot in the future where we can have, you know, like uh, other types of people have movies in the bracket? I mean, because that's what equity would be, right? Like, we would go out and we would find the another list that... Yeah. Because we then we also repro- we reproduce it ourselves, right? So right. we talk. And so about it, two it's different just going to go forever, then. Yeah, because we talk about two different movies that we had this major issue with, and both of them still won Movie of the Year. Because ultimately, we'll talk about it, but it doesn't factor that much into our final calculus of what can and can't win. So I think Die- we are kind of seeing that we have a problem. Die Hard with Argyle and Detective Carl Winslow is like the most diverse movie yes. that's ever won Movie of the Year. <laughs> Good old Argyle. <laughs> All right. Awesome job, guys. Uh, we're going to take a break, and then we are going to do a little bit of shopping. Here we go again. All right, sweetheart. All right. Daddy will get you a golden goose as soon as we get home. No, I want one of those. That's right. Welcome to Shopping Spree. Imagine if this movie was not this complicated or not, nuanced or not, a film full of all of these ideas or not, but instead a giant grocery store where we all get shopping carts and we get to go in and put anything, whatever our heart and mind desires into that cart. Guys, we're going to, uh, I'm going to say we're going to grab like three or four things and then I'm going to decide who is the best shopper. Mike, the cart is yours. The movie is yours. Where are you running to? Uh, I'm going to start with what I think is an obvious one because it's one of the major MacGuffins and it is cute and kitschy. Uh, but most of all, because like as we sit here chatting, there are papers flying around my bedroom because I don't have <laughs> anything to hold them down and I cannot let that stand. So I, I do need to get a paper mache bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now, you could get any paperweight, but how does the bagel and cream cheese and the paper mache speak to you? Uh, I love bagels. I love cream cheese. Uh, paper mache I'm fine with. I, I haven't had that much history with it, but I, I'm looking forward to getting to know it. Probably the worst possible thing you could choose for a paperweight, right? It's paper light mache. and hollow, right? It itself is paper. I mean, a literal bagel with cream cheese dripping would hold your papers Ooh. better than this. I'm hungry. Except Goddamn. that every time you walk past it, you'd pick it up and eat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, my wife just decided that like we haven't had bagels in a while. Holy shit. You it's guys dangerous. bagels? Dude, they're so good. Yeah, I know, but the thing is, like, you have to be careful because you have one bagel and you're like, maybe I should just be about that bagel life, and it gets a hold of you really quick, dude. Yeah, and by a hold of you, you mean a hold of those ribs? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Plus, if you put pizza on that, then you can now have bagels anytime you want. Literally oh, anytime. In the morning? French uh, yeah. Revolution. I suddenly appear, biting into a bagel bite. That is an episode of Legends of Tomorrow. Greg, you are up next. What are you going to put in your cart? The Every time we do this, the first thing I do is I run right over to the vehicle section. These movies, I mean, this is how I got my Lamborg- Lamborghini Countach. Uh, this is how I got my Mercedes-Benz. Like, uh, this movie does not have quite the same choices. I am going to go with the panel van that Cheech and Chong drive in. Cheech and Chong, of course, playing themselves, uh, and I believe they provided their own van. It's a broken down van, but panel vans are cool, and I thought that could be like our like um, superhero like mode of transportation. The panel van, <laughs> uh, we all to the panel van, and we all run and hop in it and then and drive off. Also, there's no windows in that van, so anything you want to do in there is just your business. Like sex, like poop, like sex. You could smoke of the marijuana. 
You could paper mache. You could do whatever you want. Cheech and Chong prove uh, this major thing in this movie, which is it's not just like uh, be able to sneak into places if you're going to steal stuff or also some of the stuff you stole, some of the stuff you, you bought. bought. Yeah, it's totally fine. Uh, but also know how to pack it. Like that van had so many things, you know, they know how to fill that shit up. Oh, God, Greg, I was so scared that you were going to take the Mr. Softy truck. So that is what <laughs> I will be purchasing. Um, there should be a line of, like, matchbox cars from this movie where we could own <laughs> little replicas of all of these things. The taxi but, cab, the frosty truck. And it's not even that I want an ice cream truck. I want Catherine O'Hara's, like, uh, just pride of uh-huh. having it and just, like, ready to throw out her license that she gets to own it at any time anybody has a question for me. All right, Mike, you're up. Oh, wait, hold on. Let me give a point here. Paperweight or panel van? <sighs> it's just oh. it's going to be so much more useful. Mike, you're up. Where, where are we going? Uh, I, I love the idea of uh, you go into a place you haven't been before, and it, am I going to see some dancing, or am I about to see Wolverine take down a trucker? I think a dance club lined with interior chain yes. fences is so <laughs> fucking awesome. <laughs> so Such an you iconic look. You don't just want the fence and the barbed wire. You want that room that yeah. is now your basement, and you can go down there anytime you want. And that's that's what gets creepy, because if it's a dance club, cool. If you go to somebody's basement and it looks like this, oh, I'm definitely going to die. I feel like this is one of those things that we see represented in movies and TV shows all the time. I have never seen Chain Link Fence inside. Mm-mm. Never one time, except in, in countless movies and television shows. My favorite part, though, about this is that we see it when it's bumping and it looks totally normal because we watch movies and then we see it empty at the end. Yes. And now you just you have brought fence and barbed wire into your building and it's just alone now. <laughs> it's like you brought it in an outhouse. Why is this in here? It's supposed to be out there. <laughs> Greg, where are we going? Uh, the, the interior fencing. That is such a good one. So I'm going to take the, the cue from that. Uh, Julie... The waitress, who is straight from the 60s, um, I guess, which is like uh, supposed to be her prime when this when this movie takes place. Still whatever, listening to the monkeys. For, yeah, still listening to the monkeys. For whatever reason, um, she's wearing like a macrame tie. And I don't know if it's part of her like work attire or if it's supposed to go with that dress. It's never really explained. It's very small. Uh, it goes down like about like 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 six inches, and it's just a macrame tie, and she's just wearing it the entire the, her entire time of the movie. And I want that tie. That looks nice. I'll take <laughs> this that. Is, this is why it's so easy to shop for you on your birthday. I have to find a company that will line Mike's entire house with fences, and I can just whip up a macrame tie for you. Um, I'm gonna go with the paper mache scream statue. Um, I know that they're confused as the same throughout the movie. There's two. They don't look alike at all. Um, but I'm going to go with the final one, which is just hands on head and little eye holes. Uh-huh. And I don't know if I'm going to go in it that no, I'm going to go in it <laughs> I, every once in a while. I think I'm going to go in there as a treat. When he gets put into that, there's this moment where the movie like starts to, there's a couple times this is going to happen, but there's this feeling where it might pivot towards like horror. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he's just going to be stuck inside this thing forever. And when he finally does break out of that, I think we in the audience are as relieved as he is. I mean, when uh, when we see the first paper mache statue mm-hmm. and it goes from his like the way that the camera goes from his POV onto the statue, that is horrifying. Like yeah. that is straight yeah. up horror movie. Uh, Mike, you're going to take that down again. Mike. Yes. Greg, you're up. This is your last pick. Where are you going to go? Well, a lot of good choices here. There's 
the twenty dollar bill. I thought that was neat. Um, there was a remote control with big chunky buttons from the beginning. I like that. But here's what I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with the Griffin Dunn massage package, and here's why. He knows a few moves. Uh, he instantly puts Kiki Bridges to sleep with either his story or his massage, and then he does that cool thing where he doesn't rape her, uh, <laughs> which shows that he's a gentleman. Um, but yeah, that the Griffin Dunn massage man. He knows a few moves. But Rosanna Arquette, alleged like a recent rape victim, says, "What'd you do to her?" And he's like, "Oh, nothing." And he and she's like, "Oh, okay, cool." He also has that move where she pulls down one bra strap, and then he's like, "Oh, well then, I'll just do the other one." Hello. Yep. He has come to have sex with her roommate, and he's like, "You know what? I'm gonna also try to have sex with you because all that's, that's important." Is that's that what I have you sex. definitely know. Yeah, he de- he doesn't know what he wants that. Night. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just gonna wander somewhere, and things will happen. Mike, where are we going? Uh, this one, I don't know if it's a winning one, but like, I got to be true to me, man. When he goes to John Hurd's bar the first time, he goes to the bathroom and he's like covered in rain. He's very upset. And he looks at the mirror and he looks to the left of the mirror and somebody has doodled uh, a stick figure person and a shark like chomping their dick. And it's the funniest thing in this entire movie. And I want a print of it to hang up in my bathroom. Part of what but, I think is so funny about it is look at the expression on the guy's face. Yes, he's getting no. his huge dick chomped by a shark. He just looks like so nonplussed. He's just like, Mondays, huh? We've talked a lot about Griffin Dunn's tantrums in the movie, but I think the movie coasts on the fact that like he doesn't freak out when he should, you know? And I think that does go back to the Kafka thing. And that's the guy with the shark on yeah. his dick. He's just like, this is weird, dude. I don't know. I do, I do not know what's going on. Such is life. Uh, Mike, if you had said tattoo of that, you would have taken it down, but uh, I'm going to give it to Greg. Shit. Oh, wait, and then I get one more thing, and I think I'm going to uh, I'm gonna take, and I knew that you guys weren't going to, I'm going to take the burn book, uh, a book oh. that we barely get to look at, but oh. Griffin Dunn is, like, flipping through this textbook of the worst burns, uh, like, physical fire burns of all time, and he almost throws up, and I want I, uh, I want to just light a fire, <laughs> pour a glass of brandy, and dig through that book. Yikes. That's awful. All right, so here's what we got in the cart. Mike, you got a paperweight that is in the shape of bagel and cream cheese, a barbed wire fencing for your house, and a stick figure shark biting his penis <laughs> print that you're going. And how big is this, by the way? Uh, five by five. Five by five inches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just going to keep it in my wallet. <laughs> show everybody. <laughs> Anytime somebody makes me look at their kid, that's what I'm going to yeah, show. Now, now I got something for you, too. Hang on. <laughs> Uh, Greg is cruising around Soho in his panel van wearing a macrame tie, asking people on the street if they want his massage package. And <laughs> I have a Mr. Softy truck. Uh, I have that statue. And then I have that burn book. I Yeah. That's a, right. that's a win for me for sure. <laughs> We're going to take a break. And when we come back, let's get back to the movie. Gentlemen, Pauline Kale said that one of the reasons the movie is so bad is because of the thinness of Paul's character. He doesn't have depth, and he learns and believes in nothing. Do you agree with her assessment of Paul and that it ruins the movie? Yeah, I don't... I agree with her assessment of Paul, I think. I don't know what he does come away believing, but I don't think it ruins the movie because I don't think it's an accident. It does feel like he's vacuous because Scorsese is saying these folks in 85 are vacuous. Like... Like, 
he is chasing all this shit because he doesn't have anything real in his life. And when he's in the beginning looking at those pictures of kids or wedding rings on other people's hands, instead of like, oh, that, he's like, nah, I'm going to chase statues. I'm gonna chase. One of the times he freaks out is about the fucking paperweight. Like, he does, he know he needs something, but it's never anything real he's after. Yeah, I, I mean, see, the movie, I feel like it's kind of protecting itself under this curtain of like, am I commenting on this stuff or am I engaging in this stuff? But he really is a very flat character. And part of that is because he doesn't strive to understand like anybody else that he is talking to unless, except insofar as he is trying to like get something that he wants out of them. And I don't know how much the movie does at critiquing that and how much, like, because he doesn't seem to learn that at any point in the movie that he has to stop and actually listen to people and like Mm -hmm. be a part of something. Instead, it's just he's like what he wants keeps changing and all that he pursues it with the same sort of like haphazard fashion. But it's not by developing compassion or empathy for anybody other than himself. You think he's going to find it with June. But what he really wants from June, the older um, lady in the bar at the end, is he wants to be mothered by her. And so he wants to be like turned back into into a child. And so it's like that's the exact opposite of change. He's he's absolutely reverting into like this you know hold me while i weep like protect me from the hordes like that's it seems like he goes from being an adult to a child over the course of the movie and he does that by rejecting any sort of lesson or or developing any depth what if i were and i'm not i'm just this is practice round what if i were to say that he spends the movie realizing like he starts off saying i want sex i'm a dude i can get it I'm, i'm a fucking baller and then throughout this the course of this movie realizes that oh my god i I can't i'm awful and i'm boring and i hate myself and so then like june is clearly different than the first four women right um it's not a sex thing and it it is an absolute rebirth to the point where like she puts him in like a new sort of womb and then he breaks out and is reborn that that is the thing that he learned is that uh, i have to restart i have to uh, i'm not ready to you know, give a woman what she wants as a husband or a lover. I just, I need to find my mommy again. Yeah. I mean, they could sit on that a little bit more because the, the making June, his mommy is, is very clear. I mean, every woman stands for like a different aspect of femininity in this movie. And because of that, it's troubling because they're all two dimensional because they're just supposed to be like avatars of a certain type of woman that maybe Martin Scorsese or the, or the screenwriter ran into at some point. And so then ultimately to like go all the way back to mommy feels like the most reductive thing you could possibly do. She's the er woman, right? Like, and she's coming in to rebirth him, but we don't get to see what sort of knowledge he actually acquires Mm -hmm. from that, that rebirth. We don't see what new Paul is like. And, and like, so this is not super textual, but going off of everything else in the movie, uh, it does seem like Paul thinks he's reborn. But because he didn't engage with anybody, he's like, I think so many people are like, I'm going to change now. And then nothing happens because you got to do the hard work. But See, that's why hard night in Soho. So he thinks he's going to be completely different now. And he's just going to keep pulling it up. That's and why I think he's in hell. Yeah, I, th- I think he's in hell because he can't he, he's never going to learn because you don't learn by the time you get to hell. It's just at that point you are just playing out your weaknesses and you're being tortured. And that's why I think ultimately it, that he's just caught in a cycle and he's being punished. And it's through that lens that the movie actually is less offensive because then, of course, all these people are just 
kind of two-dimensional because they're just mm-hmm. instruments of his own right. private torture. Again, to bring it back to the Kafka st- story, the last thing the guard says to the guy in the Kafka story is this was your own personal entrance constructed just for you. This hell is Paul's hell. It's constructed just for him. So maybe he doesn't have to learn because that's not available at that point. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's his own personal hell. And like, I just, I don't want it to be literal when we say that it's hell. Like there are hell references. Like it's not just the Orpheus story, but then also, uh, who's the guy, the cab driver is like this other character who will like, you know, take you to Sharon, the fairy Sharon, Sharon, his name's Sharon. Yeah. Sharon Stone, (laughs) the fairy guy. Uh, so yeah, there are all those illusions, but like, it's not the hell, uh, you know, that we typically think of. It's just closer to what you said, Greg, the, uh, that you're, you create your own personal one. And what we have is we have stripped you of all of the things that you held dear. You thought you were cool because you had this job and you made this money and that you're white and that you're a dude. And then you come to find out that like, no, you're hopelessly alone. And all the stuff that you thought were cool actually are terrible. You know, like you're actually worthless, you know, and uh, there's a famous critic, Robin Hood. <laughs> Let's say Robin Thicke. Uh, said that this is the ultimate straight white male nightmare because you go from your land to a place where it's just strong females and gay people. And like now all of your power has been completely... And, and then the money thing, it's all sucked away from you. There is something kind of interesting to watching a movie in the, in the current context, and it's um, like an overprivileged white guy who can't get back to his home in New York, considering like what's going on in New York right now is so many people who are being trapped by the cops and not being allowed to like get into the subway, uh, being forced by the police to like be stuck out on the streets and then all pushed together uh, to see him like, sort of like go through his own personal version of that. Uh, it's just a weird sort of like resonance to, to modern happenings. So yeah, instead of like feet and birds everywhere, like it would be for me, he has this one. <laughs> I I do have to say that the I if you listen to the music of the movie with the thinking that I've been thinking that like it's like supposed to be hell all the music talks about like eternity uh and like being together forever and this being like the last chance I think it's really interesting the music cues again I don't like you're saying Ryan I don't know if there's like it's literally supposed to be hell but there's a lot of evidence there even in the music to like indicate that it's like some sort of like hell or eternal situation. Yeah. Let's, let's get to these five ladies that we've talked about all night. Uh, you can break the movie down into five run-ins with women. Marcy, the white rabbit initiator, who is like, if you look at the cover, you think is the star. And yeah. she is, she's dispatched with, you know, within the first 25 minutes. Uh, Kiki, the paper mache artist, Julie, the cocktail waitress known as B- Ms. Beehive, 1965, Gail, the ice cream truck driver and June, the final boss. What do we make of these five characters and then sort of like Paul's attitude towards them? They're all the f- types, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Marcy is like basically sex baby. She's like, it, it, she's very childlike. Um, she comes off as, as simple, and but also obviously is like a, a reader because they have right. that big conversation about Tropic of Cancer. And I'm still not sure. Part of the reason I think that this might be like he's supposed to be in hell she is clearly fucking with him so hard either she is a compulsive liar or she's just really having a fun time running him through the ringer but she keeps acting so innocent and like she's just about to to initiate like sex with him and then anytime he makes any sort of move towards her 
she like retreats into a lot of times what is trauma yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I might be horribly burned. I might be, you know, I've been the victim of, uh, like a lengthy sexual assault. Um, and so she's kind of like at once childish and then, but also seems to be like a, maybe a tormentor. But well, like, I, I think, aren't they, <clears throat> they're all tormenting him in different ways. So right. this is how she is. But I, I think she represents for, for Griffin Dunn's character, like that the innocent victim like he's trying to come in here and save her so he thinks he's a big fucking hero man and that means he deserves to get that sex and he knows shit about her yeah or what her's going on with her but i like the weird part is not the to me the like the papers say bagels and cream cheese and the mohawk shavings it's how this their interactions seem like slightly casual and like they've known each other for a long time mm-hmm. yeah. even though they just met and then but also twisted you know where like it seems almost normal but and yeah. that's that is part of what makes me think that they are all types but it's not saying that you know all women fit into one of these five categories but instead uh paul is going to face down each of his insane fears about women you know Scott they're gonna re- style yeah, exactly. <laughs> they're they're going to represent all of the thi- all of the reasons why he's single, and it's because he is scared shitless, and then passes that off as like macho men are better. the The big one with her actually is that uh, he sees uh, like a burn scar on her leg in the beginning of the movie. Like she crosses her legs, and there's a burn scar. And then when he pulls the blanket back on her dead body, it's instead a tattoo that she probably got with her boyfriend because it matches the keychain that the bartender had. Yeah, like the skull. And so what he's seen as, like, experience and coolness and, I don't know, like, boldness is actually... He sees as, like, scars, as, like, things that, like, you have... Your body is damaged because you have this past, which Mm -hmm. is a common fear of dudes when they talk to chicks. Yeah. Ryan. It's a good point. Also, one of the most, like, arresting things that, that I saw in the entire movie was the really weird scene where... He's like a, he's trying to like apologize to her, but she has killed herself, and he literally talks to her for like two minutes before he realizes that she's dead. And then after she's dead, he doesn't try to like do anything to save her, Mm-mm. and he also looks at her naked body quite a bit. Uh, I found everything about that to be deeply disturbing and sort of emblematic of how the movie treats its women. I, see. I get what you're saying for sure, especially because in in the film that he doesn't get a real comeuppance, but it does seem like if at any point he's the protagonist, that's inarguable. But if you thought at any point Griffin Dunn was a hero, you should root for this scene lets you know, no fucking way. Yeah. And so like, that's like, is this a little bit of fight club where the wrong people got the wrong message, you know, and they're Mm -hmm. not in on the joke. And what we're supposed to be thinking is that Griffin Dunn has, is like the kind of worst person because he thinks that he's a good person, but has all of the worst tendencies of the bad people. And we're supposed to realize that. And we're supposed to learn from him something that he'll never learn himself. And instead it just comes off as like this wacky comedy where you get in trouble in New York and we're all Griffin Dunn's, aren't we? He's eighties style, deeply selfish and self-interested. And right at the heart of the eighties, we're getting a message that does critique that because he is absolutely isolated and can't even communicate with anybody. Um, But it's, I, do, I, I feel like the movie tries to hide behind how complicated these relationships are when really it doesn't do a good job of critique a good enough job of critiquing this stuff. And then of course there's oh, 
Of course, there's speed round, <laughs> guys. This is your last chance for points, so make it count, except for the awards, and then I'll probably get points in the outro, and who knows what's going to happen. Does it suck, or is it surprising that Griffin Dunn never made it as a star? Yeah, I think I could watch this guy forever. I, I find him a very compelling actor. There, there's something almost wooden about a lot of the performances in what? here, and once it clicks that it's on purpose, watching him not be able to be a human, you're like, you're making all those choices, and that's bananas. Yeah, I, I, I have issues with this movie, and I have issues certainly with the character of Paul, but the issues don't extend to the performance of, of Griffin Dunn. This guy, like, this, I can't believe he disappeared. I mean, he was he was on that HBO miniseries, I Love Dick, uh-huh. uh, and he's very with good. With Catherine Hahn. Yeah, and he's very good in that, and that's a, that's a, that's a right. cool show. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, man, we, where's our denissance? <laughs> I think the whole character and why he's great can be summed up, like the selfishness and the whiteness and everything. And also his, like, delivery, why he's so good, can be summed up where he watches a woman murder her husband from across the yeah. apartment, and then it's like, oh, I'm probably going to get blamed for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Is this just Leisure Suit Larry the movie? <laughs> okay. I legitimately, okay, he's wearing, like, a leisure suit, right? And all he's doing is he's going through a series of misadventures trying to put it in, and, and he never quite can. Like, Right. I mean, did they seriously make this ba- make those games based on this movie? Yeah, it's just like <laughs> so many adaptations don't understand the point of the first one. And so they're like, that's what people wanted from After Hours, right? Let's just watch this weird guy. This movie to, plays as Greg out, said, get it in. This movie plays out like a point and click adventure. You first you have to go get the keys, then you equip mm-hmm. the keys and right like Yeah, it's so episodic and mission driven. Yeah. It- is Soho just Monkey Island? Is that what the whole movie's <laughs> I about? I fucking love the Monkey Island series. I miss it, guys. Uh, we hit on this a little bit, but I want to make it personal. Would you guys be as calm as the man in the drawing on the wall of the bathroom if a shark was biting every inch of your gigantic penis? Honestly, dude, that guy is that guy's my Patronus right now because <laughs> society is just absolutely biting all of our dicks. And as much as like who, it, people are fed up by it, there's also this air of just like 2020, dude. Wh- I mean, what else? What else you got? Like, if a shark yeah. bit my dick at this point, I would be like, yeah, it's 2020. Sometimes a shark is just gonna bite your dick. <laughs> I don't like it, but you know, what are you get gonna bent do? out of shape. A shark yeah. biting your dick feels very like 1997 to me. Uh, a bunch of sharks learning how to walk and then going around and biting everybody's dick as their plan. Like they figured this out <laughs> as a group. That's 2020. Yeah, it, it's clear that it that it represents this year because we heard about mur- murder hornets a month ago. All kind of laughed and then stopped hearing about it. But they, uh, something's <laughs> going on with the murder hornets. Dick sharks. Mike. John Hurd, the bartender, walks out of the diner to tell Catherine O'Hara that Paul is inside. Is this the moment when they meet, fall in love, have Kevin McAllister, leave him home alone, and then eventually <laughs> lost in New York? <laughs> yes, and that 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 why they are so weird in in the Home Alone films. It's because this is their past, and they've been trying to be normal suburban parents for years. Uh, and this makes so much sense. Is the Home Alone series just set in hell? <laughs> it's like two demons of one guy's specific hell fall in love and have a kid, and then Aunt- that's why Trump is there. That's why Trump's it's in the second hell. one because it's hell. Shit. Can you imagine if the Wet Bandits were Joe Pesci and Griffin Dunn and how much more the parents would have freaked out? Like, get out of our lives. All right, and th- uh, let's do this one real quick. Uh, the ending was famously difficult for Scorsese to figure out. He discussed having Cheech and Chong drive him away and then roll credits, as Greg, you said earlier. The screenwriter added a scene where June becomes a giant. That's the mom figure at the end. Yeah. Uh, and Paul climbs into her womb. 
He brought in Spielberg, De Niro, and De Palma to help him, but it was Scorsese's dad and legendary British director Michael Powell who gave him the ending that he got with Paul falling out of the truck, breaking out of his papier-mâché prison, and going back to work. Did they pick the right one? I think so. Out of those three, uh, the driving away is like too open-ended and not an interesting way, and the giant June womb crawl. Uh, I don't need to see it. I don't. I don't like that's even more on the nose. I'll say this: if the movie did end that way, you guys would have heard of this movie before. Oh yeah, <laughs> for sure. I feel like there is something so true about the ending of him climbing into the vagina. That really is his whole journey is to become more and more childlike instead of actually evolving he's devolving until finally it's just like okay you benjamin buttoned you're you're right back but obviously you i don't think you can shoot and stage that and everything the, to me the ending that works best is he becomes like he becomes the statue and it's supernatural and it's weird and then it it it, it rewrites everything that happened in the movie until then but this is a story about a guy that is just so stuck. Even more than devolving, he is absolutely stuck. He is a statue. <laughs> he is fixed in place. It would be the neatest, best ending. And I just think that ultimately it was so avant-garde that it was hard to convince themselves to do any. They picked the most normal answer, I think. They picked yeah. the most normal ending. That, that still kind of works. I mean, even though it's famous people, it still was straight up focused grouped and feels yeah. like a focused group <laughs> ending. Um, but yeah, like, I don't know if they did miss the point by doing that. I do love the ending. I think it's cool. But then the other thing I want to throw in there is that he sits back at his desk and the camera tornadoes around the office again. And when it finally gets back to his desk, he is not there. His jacket is on his chair and the, the vase is still there, but he is no longer there. And so I don't know if that's supposed to represent that he learned something or maybe it was an accident. We all, <laughs> we don't talk enough about how sometimes these important things are just accidents like film clubs. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. Like, did he, did he learn and leave, and we weren't supposed to notice? I don't know what's going on. I, I guess of all the potential answers, his leaving would be the most hopeful, and that would mean the rebirth ending, you know, was was true. Um, or he is just he is so disappeared because the whole movie was about how he hardly exists. And so the other way to look at it is just, no, he just like evaporates or something. Right. Once the Soho characters go away, then you should go away because that's the only thing that we gave a shit about. (laughs) Excellent job, guys. We are going to take a break and then we are going to hand out some awards. Hey guys, real quick, before we get back to the rest of the show, I just wanted to tell you about your Go to that website to get everything that is pop filter all of our podcasts all of our articles all of our secrets everything is on yourpopfilter.com while you're there go to yourpopfilter.com slash amazon and if you make that your new amazon bookmark then you can help amazon less and us more and isn't that what we all want to do in the world some of those podcasts that you can get on the website or in apple podcasts or stitcher or wherever you get your shows uh, include the superhero hour hour where Cassie, Mike, and I discuss every single TV show based on a comic book, and The OCD, where Mike and I discuss every episode of The OCD. And then, of course, Movie of the Year, where Greg, Mike, and I try to figure out what is the single greatest movie of any given year. So make sure you're downloading all of those shows. Leave a review. Leave a star rating. Leave a podcast. If you have an idea for an episode, just record it and email it to us and We'll probably put it on the air. Thanks. Bye. I just said awards. And you know what that means? Wait, hold on. Awards. Do you know what that means? Awards? Awards. It's awards time, guys. We're going to do awards. 
Uh, this movie received no Oscars, and I'm going to assume no Oscar nominations. So let's see if we can give it some. If it loses any of these awards, yeah, seriously. then that means it's a bad movie, right? Yeah, it's a bad sign. It should be a shoe-in for the After Hours Awards. <laughs> Our first award is called Pound for Pound Performance. This means that it doesn't have to go to the lead, but who spent the best time with the time that they got? Mike, who is your Pound for Pound Performance Winner. See, this is worrisome because I do think this might be the one After Hours loses because the weekend's performance on his album After Hours yes, uh, yes. is so good that I think it might have to go to him. And frankly, the week even with all the bloody the notes, weekend's yeah. performance in Uncut Gems also. Yes, uh, but if it cannot uh, go to him, then I do think uh, it, Griffin Dunn does a lot with a little man. Oh, because he's short. That's rude. Yeah, I'm making. I'm get back to my classic short. Jokes. That's a low brow <laughs> joke. Oh, is that an eyebrow? Oh, there it is. <laughs> That's you haven't even said your award yet, Greg. Um, Greg, what do you got? Did you also go with the Dunster? I love this award because it can be someone who's just in the movie for just a, a little bit, or it can be like the main character. And I could see it totally being Griffin Dunn in this. But for me, honestly, it's Rosanna Arquette. Um, I don't love her character, but. The way you never can get grounded in, is she flirting? Is she asking for help? Is she trying to get away? Is she fucking with this guy? Is she aware that she's lying? Is she compulsively lying? Like, what is the truth? What isn't? It's all over the place, but she's in total control of the performance. And especially watching it the second time, I was very impressed with with her work in this. I I mean, like, I remember the poster that, Ha- that featured her heavily like even more than griffin dunn and it's not like she was a big star at the time i think that you watch the movie and then you make the poster and you're like she's the alluring part you know like she's the kickstarter for a lot of reasons so yeah i love griffin dunn in this uh i'll say it again that one time where he was like they're probably gonna blame me for that it was wonderful <laughs> but uh greg you take it down our next award is cringiest moment and this is one where when we did the movies of 2019 was sometimes a little difficult, but guys, we're in 85 now, yeah. and whew, yeah, 85 is going to rack these up. Mike, what was the cringiest moment to you? Yeah, this is hard for the opposite reason of 2019. Uh, a lot did make me cringe, but I do think it's his second or third conversation with Patri- or Arquette, and he's trying to seduce her while he knows something is deeply wrong with her. So he's both like, no, tell me about it. But he thinks like she's going to unload her trauma and then we're going to fuck. And even when she tells him uh, that it's an ex raped her for six straight hours, he's like, I think I might still be able to like it's the the false comfort just so he can get laid Uh." in in this bed that we're in now from that window. We're like we're on the scene of the crime. And yeah, like you had said earlier, Mike, owed sex. Yeah. Like, he feels like it. And then also, there's I'm sure there's a part of him that just straight up doesn't believe her. So And you can, like, see yeah. that calculus in his head for, like, what is this doing for my chances? Yeah. <laughs> Greg, that's probably, the, that's probably the moment, but I'll throw out another one, and it's, uh, it's the same actress. Um, she uses the bad F word, and we did back then, I think. Um, didn't realize it, what a toxic word this was, but it's still... She re- references her friend, who's named Greg, so maybe I'm taking it personally. But that word is just so nasty and so terrible. And especially in a movie that like purports to maybe say something about gay culture, the casual use of it, I think is 
it, it I, I think that it's supposed to be character defining, but it's mm-hmm. just so icky. So that's what it is for me. And if the if the moment lasted one second longer, you know she was gonna say, Oh, I have so many of my friends are gay, like they just let me use that word. But Mike. Yeah, that was yeah. so gross, Mike. So gross, and um, but like I guess what's even worse about that is like there's something very real about the grossness of that. That's why it's so cringy. Yeah, like you, we, I feel like I've seen, I've watched people do that in real life. Yeah. Well, stop watching them do that. What are you doing? Just peeping in rapist windows. Yeah, and I'm like, I'm gonna get blamed for that on the. I love the 80s is the name of this award, not an actual sentiment of mine. We're gonna talk about what was the single most 80s moment of this movie. Greg, we'll start with you. What okay, is the Okay, uh, the character of Kiki, the way she looks is the exact picture that you would see like uh, on a outside like a hairstylist. Like they they all have like these yes. same pictures and they Oh man. And I think do you guys still some for some reason. Like the cover of Duran Duran that album that had Rio yeah. on it, where it's just like this specific type of art that was just hanging in mm-hmm. all nail salons for years. So she already, like, that's so 80s. But then uh, she's just in her bra because she's doing art at first. And it's like, okay, that's pretty that's pretty lame movie. But then she walks into another scene and just for no reason, without saying anything, takes off her top. And that is the most 80s thing you can do in a movie where you skip the opportunity where to have the nudity make any sense. You could, you're, this is your movie. You're making it. So you can have the nudity happen for any reason. But just because people do like boobs and I am a big fan, she just like walks into a scene, takes off her top and then throws her bra like over her shoulder. Like, all right, see you later. <laughs> like a continental and soldier. It's just, it is. That is what all 80s nudity was like. They didn't find a way to make it make sense. They just had it happen. I was thinking that the only movie that we're going to get out of this season without having just needless boobs is The Goonies, but there's the Truffle Shuffle. So I think every <laughs> single week we're going to see some Underage, nudity. though. Mike, what do you got? Uh, I think if you're making a movie in the 80s, particularly 85, because I think at this point Squares finally really learned and got what punk was and weren't so afraid if they couldn't try to put it in their shit – it, I don't know what punk is. I know it's Mohawks, <laughs> and I know they're angry. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, the, I don't think the music wasn't even particularly punk. So it was just style, and they're slamming each other into fences. And aren't they weird and shaving each other's head? It was so uh, surface level only punk. And then the other thing he knew is that if you're going to be at a punk club, you take the most handsome guy and you put him, you know, raised above and shining a spotlight uh-huh. on the crowd. Did you guys notice how he fit in there? Uh, yeah, like somebody at some point should have been like. Marty, baby, Bubba, you don't understand punks. And he was like, no, I got it. Mohawks. <laughs> Mike, that is 80s as fuck. Uh, New York City. Is it a character in this movie? It is not. <laughs> it's never been a character in any movie. But was there a part in this movie where you're like, that's very New York? Mike, what do you got? Uh, it's. I think that they're, it's when he's still with Arquette and they're walking to the diner and he's like, is anything going to be open? She's like, yeah, it's only 3 a.m. <laughs> There's nothing more New York is like, not only is it dumb you ask that question, like, I'm going to make you feel bad for saying, is anything open at 3 a.m.? If It can't be only 3 a.m. Like, there's no, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Like, that's, it's, it, then it just becomes the morning, and then a place should mm-hmm. be open. Like, if you're open at 3 a.m., you're open all the times. Yes. <laughs> oh, Greg, what okay. Do you got? For me, uh, when I think of New York, 
I I think of a lot of different terrible things, but one of them is New York City is a city that just everything is wet all the time. <laughs> and in this movie, everywhere they go, even when it's not raining, everything is just so wet. And you're always looking at the water and you're like, what did that run down off of? And how long has that been standing there? Yeah, you know it smells. Yeah. You uh, know it all smells. And because I've been, like, I've been to New York a lot, I know exactly what it smells like and so Mm -hmm. just this dampness this persistent dampness all throughout the movie i could like smell this fucking movie (laughs) is new york just one big like disneyland dark ride where that that style of water is just yes or like a log ride where like that water is just everywhere and you will become the lizard queen (laughs) it's like all the water is run through the same twenty-five thousand garbage cans and just collects this, like, one smell that is, like, all garbage put together and then turned into water and then mixed with piss and then left out in, like, the humid warmth. And it just... City of dreams! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, there's not a lot of, like, classic Marty going on in this movie, but that is one, um, like, you need to be able to smell New York. And I know he's good at it because the Joker tried uh-huh. it. Anything that he's ever done that uh, Todd Phillips also tried. So, yeah, Greg, you're going to take right. that one down. And then finally, guys, the man of the hour. We watched a 1985 Martin Scorsese movie. What was the one moment, his one move, where you were like, ah, classic Marty? Mike, what do you got? There was not a lot of it, but I do think uh, I'll use your words as you described it earlier. Camera tornado at the end feels very much like at this point, if Paul started narrating, it was the best. Everybody was great while the camera was swirling around his office while his plastered face was there. I'm just, that's all I got. I'm just not smart enough or savvy enough about uh, movies or this director in particular to see that shot take place in the movie and not be like, that's the most Scorsese thing ever. Cause like, (laughs) I think of these complex tracking shots as like, as like totally Mm -hmm. being him. The thing that surprised me that I wouldn't think is is very Scorsese-like, and you guys both kind of alluded to this, is he tried so many director's tricks, not moves, just director's tricks in this movie that simply did not work, and then they went with them anyway. There's this (laughs) scene when she's going to go take a shower, when uh, Marcy's going to go take a shower. He obviously wants to do this shot where the camera like swings up to her and right as it gets as close to her as it's going to, she winks and then walks away. It's a bad shot. You shouldn't move the camera like this, in my opinion. But also, she doesn't wink at the right time. You didn't get the shot. You can't use that. It's, and it's so, you're like, as the, as the audience, you're just like, oof, I really feel like film work is going on here. But you're saying that as somebody from like Southern California. You don't know when New York people think. You know, like, yeah, it's just totally different. different. Um, this movie was shot by a very famous person whose name I can't remember, but he was. Uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender's cameraman mm. and he they just let him go the fuck off and like they never said no and you get to do every single close-up that you think of every single ca- like that camera swoop is like made for trailers yeah. you know like you, you don't see yeah. that in movies you see those in trailers um but I'm going to give it to Mike because I don't Mike. I'm not sure if Scorsese was totally at fault for all of that shit although he he let it happen and I mean so, if, I guess if they if you looked up Scorsese director moves in the dictionary this like long tracking shot through a, like a bustling place that's what you're gonna that's what you're gonna find it's the only one i know yeah the same <laughs> here, <so. laughs> all right guys i am going to tabulate the scores and when we come back we're gonna figure out what chances after hours has in the final bracket 
1985. Thank you for listening and for your support. If you want to support us more directly, go over to patreon.com slash your pop filter. Pick a tier, shed a tier, get some extra stuff. There's extra shows, extra long shows. Uh, you can make Ryan draw you pictures, make me write you a poem. There's all kinds of stuff over there. You could even get a shirt off our very own backs. That's patreon.com slash your pop filter. We also want to say thank you to Shady Monk for providing all the tunes you hear on this show. Check them out on Spotify, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, wherever the kids get their music that I'm too old to know. Check out Shady Monk. Back to you, Greg. I'll start, and I will say that with the first movie that we watched, I don't think that our number one seed, Back to the Future, is going to coast to the finals. And maybe you didn't like After Hours as much as I did, but I do not think this is a fucking slammy D for any movie because of I think it's 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 not just that I loved it, but I think that we're going to see such a wide variety of movies mm-hmm. that how can you pick out a favorite right now? Are you guys at least there with me? Yeah, I this is I normally at least have a guess uh, every at the beginning of every season, and I don't. So uh, that's not for or against After Hours. It's that has nothing to do with it. Looking at the movies we've seen and how many movies I've never heard of, let alone seen, uh, that we have to go through. Uh, and I'm very intrigued because this movie was doing a lot. Some worked, some didn't. So I'm interested to see how much it, because if it's that movie you keep chewing on, it tends to go on and win. Who knows if After Hours can become that? I think it, it bears a lot of the marks of the types of movie that we like, which is that it asks a lot of questions and it doesn't do it doesn't give a lot of finalizing answers. And so you like you turn it over in your head over and over again. Uh, as far as like the openness of the season, I, I really think this is a wide open season. Um, mm-hmm. And I feel like it's the kind of season where a movie like After Hours could kind of like ride the coattails of something or just like be get get matched up against other movies and and win and be everybody's second or third favorite movie. I personally took a disliking to several parts of it, and so I feel like that's going to make it tough for for it to perform. But I'm like, I loved talking about it, and it's gotten me excited about the movies of 85 because I had no expectations going into it. And when I felt inspired by the movie, it, uh, I, it, it was, like, very good. And when I felt like that the movie was reductive and um, racist and misogynist, it made me feel a depth of feeling in that way too. It was not something that I just passively looked at and, you know, didn't feel anything about. I was either feeling upset or, or really into it or, or really questioning about what's going on. So it certainly got a reaction out of me. Yeah. A lot of the way that it struck me uh, after talking to you guys was, you know, we all love Pepsi from a, like a fountain drink, you know, when they, the syrup and the things mixed together. But what if you grab that bag of Pepsi in the back and just put a straw yeah. in there and just drink the straight <laughs> syrup? And this was just Scorsese syrup. And most people, like a lot of people are going to be like, I, I could use a little bit of like, you know, plot and, you know, text and subtext and uh, him attempting to like say a thing. That's that's sort of the like the carbonated water that I like in my Pepsi. And then I, I think this was just like a straight shot to my brain. Yeah. So I'm going to vote for it hard. Uh, I already think that I picked the one. This is my Magnolia. This is the one where I'm just going to fucking throw tantrums about the entire season. Yeah. And we already have it after the first that episode. It's nice to get that out of the way. Um, I do have to announce, though, uh, who is kicking off 1985 as my best friend. And, Mike, you scored 30 points. Oh, that's That's a good score. 30 is good. 
Is that good? Thirty is pretty good. Thirty is where it, good starts. I would say. Thirty is yeah. where good starts. All right, you guys were tied at the end, and Greg, you ended up with twenty nine. <laughs> you lost right at the last second, no. and Mike, you are going to start the season as the best friend of the year. You bastard! I'm the boofty. You're, You're the boofty. boofty. <laughs> Which is something I've called you for years, and now I finally, finally know why. Sense. That's one of those time ripples. Well, you don't know why that it just reached back. This this was my my first scored competition, and it's it, it's my first loss, and uh, I plan to be difficult about it. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Greg, you taught me how to host. I clearly now I've taught you how to be a panelist. So, <laughs> the circle of life. I want to thank everyone so much for listening. And uh, please stay tuned in for the entire 1985 season. If you have not joined with Patreon yet, then you don't know who's in the Hall of Fame this week. So make sure that you figure out a way to do that. Next week, we're going to tackle the number one seed of 1985, a movie that we had just heard of and probably are going to be the first people to talk about. It's a little... like It sort of gave birth to the whole Pornhub incest porn renaissance where a boy will kiss his mother or a mother will kiss her boy it's called back to the future guys and i am very excited to talk to you about it so pumped yeah i'm man i I don't remember the last time i saw back to the future and i certainly didn't see it with an aim to talk about its like themes and meanings and (laughs) the way it's constructed as a film are you guys afraid at all that uh i don't know it's lack of its potential lack of wokeness being a movie from 85 is going to hit a little bit different. Not for this one. There's other 85 movies in the bracket. Like we, we sort of have the mainstream section and the movies. No one's ever heard of section for 85. And of all the movies in the mainstream, this is the one I'm worried about the least. I would say, but with that, we got to wait a week. So sorry. Uh, We're going to go watch that movie. And you guys as well, not just watch that, but all movies, keep on watching them. (laughs) I'm so smooth.